Good evening. You guys have your Bibles with you tonight? Can we hear those pages flip to Deuteronomy 17? Because that has been a familiar sound on a Friday night. The pages of a Bible turning, many Bibles turning, collectively. You know what I love about this Bible study? Many things about it, but one thing is that you never know what you're going to get. We're just going with the text. And so whatever the text brings us to, that's what we're going to talk about. Whether we've heard it before, whether it's something new, whether it's something uncomfortable, that's what we're going to be touching on. And for the past few weeks, we've been discussing Moses as a leader speaking to an entire generation of how to worship, of how to give, of how to observe these certain feasts, which to us may seem totally irrelevant. But when you realize that these feasts are prophetic of Christ, you go, my God, you are wise you are powerful, and you are speaking even in something like the feasts. And Moses is still preaching. This is a long sermon. Deuteronomy is really a sermon in three parts. And now we've come to a certain point where Moses is still speaking to the people. He's still instructing the people, but he's now directing his emphasis, not necessarily on worship or giving. We touched on that for many weeks. He's now going to talk about leadership. Leadership. He wants to speak to the people of how to respond to the leadership that God will establish in the land. And if we're sitting here tonight and you think, okay, now I can tune out because I'm not a leader. The emphasis and the teaching is not towards the leaders in this text. What Moses is doing here, he's speaking to the people who will be sitting under leadership and the responsibility that they have under their guidance. So this applies to everyone in here because this is not limited to leaders. This is so crucial. This is so important. I mentioned this about uh, giving, that it's a little uncomfortable to talk about giving to ministry when you are in the ministry. But we're going with a text. And this can be one of those texts where it's a little uncomfortable, speaking about leadership and not necessarily the role of the leaders as much as the people's responsibility to it. But it's the text. So we're going to ask God for wisdom and grace, okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. On this Friday night, we've chosen to be in your house. We could have been anywhere else. But Lord, we chose to be here because we believe you're going to speak to us. God in heaven, we pray that you would breathe. You would breathe upon this word and it would come to life in our hearts. We believe that no matter what the text is teaching, because it's your word, there's life in it. And we ask for life to be imparted in us, Lord. Speak powerfully, Lord. Speak clearly, Lord. Freedom from confusion. Freedom from anything in our own hearts that would block this word from entering in. And receive maximum glory and worship from your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start in verse 8 in Leviticus, excuse me, Deuteronomy 17, verse 8. So this is what Moses is saying. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. So let's stop here. Here's what he's saying. There's going to be a system in the land in which there will be local judges and leaders within your towns that are going to deal with legal issues. 
Now, when it comes to the point, regardless of the case, that becomes too difficult to figure out and to bring about a judgment, then there's a place that I'm going to choose. And that place will be, in fact, what do you guys think? That language, the place that your God will choose, what is he speaking about? What location? What building, actually? Anybody have an idea? If you're thinking the tabernacle, you're right. The tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle, that place of worship that we talked about for so many weeks, is not just a place of worship and sacrifice. It would be the supreme court for Israel. It would be the place in which these difficult cases would come, and there would be leaders established and raised up to make the final call on a matter. And think about that choice of place to make such a, a decision. Not just because there's going to be specific leaders there, but you're talking about the place where God dwells. Talk about strategy. Talk about these people that are coming with these legal cases, and as they enter into the tabernacle, they're entering into the very presence of God. You want to talk about a holy atmosphere. You want to talk about reverence. You want to talk about you want to be honest in this place. That is the place to choose to have these things figured out, and that's why God instituted it that way. So as they would come in, they would be, surely they should be trembling at the realization that God is, though there are human vessels, the ultimate judge, the ultimate lawyer, the one who knows all things. So that, that's where these things are going to be happening. And that's where God chose for these things to happen. And in verse 9, we have the two types of leaders that are going to make these judgment calls. It says here, And you shall come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. That's what it is. Levites and this category, the judge. There's going to be a judge in the land. And we're going to talk about those positions in a moment. But what do we do with a text like Deuteronomy 17 again? We say, how do I apply this to my life? And I think what we can see here for us Christians today is that in Deuteronomy 17, we have principles on leadership. Remember, not from the leaders to the people, but from the people to the leaders. So what can we draw from this text concerning leadership? Because the new covenant is different, but the principle is universal. So here are three points for this Bible study tonight. Ready? Number one. Not all matters should be immediately brought to leadership. Not all matters should be immediately brought to leadership. What does he say in verse 8? If any case, not just any case, the second part, that it says it's too difficult for you. That implies that these Levites and the judge, specifically the Levites, had other responsibilities other than judging matters. What did Levites have to do? Worship. Sacrifice. They had other duties. The Levites had to serve the priests who were in charge of certain furnitures in the tabernacle. There were other responsibilities that this leadership had to hold to faithfully. And it would not be wise for every matter to be brought to these men, though they had the call to be spiritually discerning on these issues. And so what God is saying is, if it's too difficult, then go. Now, this is Bible study. So we remember something in the past about this model. And where did it come from? Where did this model come from where there's this tier these levels that we honor before we go to the top leaders, so to speak. Where did we hear this from before? Matthew, that's in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, though. The Old Testament. We've seen this in the book of Exodus. With who? Moses? Who said Moses? Moses. Right. You're right. What happened with Moses? Moses was going solo on this. And he had a bunch of people talking about millions of people 
in the wilderness that were lining up to ask Moses for his word on things. And Moses' father-in-law steps in the scene and says, Moses, this is too much. And he gives him instructions of how to set up leaders under him so that there would be things that he can deal with on his level and not be overwhelmed. In fact, let's, let's read this on the screen in Exodus 18.18. 18. Look what it says here. You and the people, this is what his father-in-law is saying, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. I noticed something for the first time in this verse that I know, never noticed before. Every time I understood what his father-in-law was saying, I thought it was concerning Moses. Like, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. I'm like, that makes sense. But he doesn't just say Moses. He says, you and the people will wear yourselves out. Isn't that what he says? So it's not just the leader that's going to wear himself out. It's the people. Because one man can only offer so much. And where there's so many needs in the congregation, and it's being delegated to one individual, not only is that leader going to be frustrated, so are the people who are in need and are not getting the need from the person that can't give the need. Make sense? So listen, everybody's going to be frustrated when a ministry runs on a one-man model. Not just the minister, but all the people that are under that ministry. And so God in Deuteronomy 17, God through Moses' father-in-law, God in the New Testament establishes his people in a ministry context to be ruled by a plurality of leaders for the sake of longevity for both the leaders and the people. Everybody's satisfied under that. I challenge you and I to look in the New Testament and to see whenever there are instructions given to the leaders of a church, majority of the time, if not all the time, you see that there are a plurality of leaders in the church. Plurality. Read the New Testament very carefully and you'll see, you'll see elders, not elder. Elders, 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 elders. More than one leader that is being delegated responsibility to meet the needs. And the bigger the congregation, the more demand that's going to be met and has to be met by more people on a leadership level. So this is God's wisdom that people would be served by many leaders so that things can be done effectively and in a more fruitful way. That makes sense. We're not bothered by that, maybe. It's maybe the next two points that might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. That is number two in this text. It's not just not all issues should be brought to leadership immediately. It's that God has appointed, realize that God has appointed leaders to make decisions. Realize that God has appointed leaders to make decisions. You're saying, that's fine. No, decisions for the congregation. Oh. So what do we see in verse 10? Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. Old Testament principle, very true. New Testament principle, absolutely. Everything from church discipline from electing leadership within the church to even figuring out conflict from within is all dependent upon, to a degree, leadership. In other words, God has raised up people with the gift of leadership in order to make decisions that will do at least two things. One, decisions that will ultimately glorify God. And number two, decisions that will promote peace and holiness within the larger congregation. That's what a leader is called to do. 
And yes, there are people who have to voice their opinion. Yes, there are people who can give their ideas. But when it comes to matters that will bring about the direction of the church, God has raised up people for that. And what did they have to do? This is, this is the responsibility. They take the word of God, because it's not their opinion. They take the word of God, and they filter it, and they apply it to real-life situations. And they're doing this under much wisdom, under much investigation, much prayer, even fasting at points, with compassion, with boldness at times, and all of that on top of it is being energized and navigated by something called the fear of God. That's what leaders are called to be doing. And what's amazing is that in the Old Testament, they're called Levites and Judges. Levites and Judges. Now, when we hear Levites, we're in Bible study. We're learning what the Bible says about the Bible. When we talk about Levites, what, do we, what comes to mind? When you think Levite, what comes to mind in your mind? What do you see? Priest? What are those priests doing? Um, well, conducting the service. In, you know, setting, essentially setting their lives apart for the things of God. Okay, that's right. They are set apart, so full-time ministers. But what are they doing? Like, when you, when you think Levite, when you see Levite job description, what acts do you see in your mind that they're called to? Serving the church, but what specifically? Sacrifices, right? Sacrifices, cutting up animals, pronouncing this and that, observing and leading certain feasts, right? But Levites in the Old Testament actually had a teaching role. We're going to put this up on the screen. Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, 5 and 7. I say this because... Maybe we have a limited understanding of Levites in the Old Testament, but God has a teaching role in mind as well. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 5, look what God says to the people. My covenant with him, he's talking about Levi. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. I love this. And he feared me. He feared me. What does it mean to fear him? He stood in awe of my name. He stood in awe of my name, Levi. And then it goes on to say this. In verse 6, true instruction was found in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So he was a preacher to some degree. He, he taught the word of God. He wasn't just caught up in this mechanical, sacrificial system. He had verbal responsibility, and that was to preach, teach, expound the word of God. And by doing so, people were repenting. People were turning from their sin. And then it goes on to say in verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. We talked about prophets in the Bible study. And we said, they are messengers of the Lord. But did we realize that Levites were messengers as well? They spoke God's word. That was their calling. And so how do we relate that to Deuteronomy 17? So this was the art. This was the skill. When matters came to the tabernacle, the Levites had to be able to take God's word and apply it to the situation and make the right judgment call. They were masters of the scriptures. They, they should have known the word inside and out. And they applied it into people's lives to make the wise call and to make matters at ease. So that's the Levite. Now who's the judge? Because it says Levites and the judge. Anybody have an idea of where we see judge in the Bible? Judge, judge, judge. Yeah, there's a whole book about it. There's a whole book called Judges. 
And that's exactly what God has in mind here. God is foretelling that there is a time coming when they come into the land that he's going to raise up these people called judges. We have an entire book on it. So let's just read it for proof. We believe you, Barrett, but we want to see what the Bible says. In Judges 2.16, Then the Lord raised up judges, Judges 2.16, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they hoard after other gods and bow down to them. And more specifically, because when we think judges, we think of Samson just going in and tearing up the place. No, including Samson was Deuteronomy 17. They needed to really know how to make judgment calls in civil matters. Proof of that is in Judges chapter 4 with a lady named Deborah. Judges 4, 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipadoth was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she's in a different location, but they came up to her for judgment. So these are what the judges were called to do. Levites and judges. They were called to make specific decisions, and God will raise up people in your life when you come into a local church setting and there's a submission element to that. I know it's a word that makes us feel uncomfortable. But this is not Old Testament. One more verse. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Look what Hebrews 13, 17 says. This is New Testament. I remember when I first got saved, and I was sitting, I was at a retreat, and I was hearing the preacher. He says, turn your Bibles to Hebrews. And I thought, Hebrews, Old Testament, for sure. So I was going to the Old Testament. I was looking through the Old Testament. Where is this book called Hebrews? And the person was so gracious beside me said, it's in the New Testament. I said, Thank you so much. I used the index before. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they're keeping watch over your souls. Who wants to be a pastor? Want to watch over people's souls? Not their bank accounts. Not their physical health. Their eternal souls. Anybody want to sign up? That's why I'm a firm believer that God calls men to this kind of a ministry. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those, oh, so they're not just keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Think about this. So not just watching over, what is the condition of your soul? Based on my observation and based on one's managing and speaking into and whatever is involved in the person's soul, I will be, every leader will be held accountable for how that soul was watched over. But then remember, the responsibility, we're, we're emphasizing on the responsibility on the other end of the spectrum. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, it's very simple. There's a way in which they can watch over your souls with greater joy and energy and excitement and involvement, and there's a way that they can do it because of a lack of whatever, fill in the blank, towards that individual where they can do so poorly as a result. And we don't want any of that. The leadership and the people, there's a win-win there's a, a when we respect one another, the way the Bible calls us to. I, I want to focus on the third point in Deuteronomy 17 concerning leadership. It's not just realize that God has raised up leaders to make decisions. The third point is trust. Trust 
what the decisions that the leaders are making that are appointed by God are for the best and by God's leading. Look at verse 12 in Deuteronomy 17. What does it say? The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands up to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So if there was a case being made in the Old Testament and the, the Levites and the judge say, okay, we've investigated. This is the decision. This is the final decision call. And they, they slam that mallet, right? Boom. If there is an opposition to that, the result of it is actually death in the Old Testament. That's a very serious thing, but it was to promote, again, peace and a riot from erupting in the infancy of this nation stage. But I want us to focus on, look at this part in verse 12. The priest, look at the description, who stands to minister there before the Lord your God. That is the job description of a priest. He stands before he ministers to the people. Listen very carefully. Before he stands to minister to the people, he is first ministering to God. He's first ministering to God. And any leader that prioritizes ministering to people over ministering to God has the cart before the horse. And they are entering into disaster eventually. So, so what happens here? This is what we can pull out of here. Two things. Number one, because there will be sometimes, even in a local church like this, there will be some times where decisions will be made that are not as black and white. This is not saying, take whatever you get from a leader, even if he disobeys God's word. God is going to tell them in a moment, specifically in the book of Malachi, what's going to happen if a priest chooses to willfully disobey God's word. This is not just swallow whatever is given to you, even if it's blatant disobedience. No. Sometimes... There's going to be some gray areas. Sometimes there's issues that are not so clear. And ultimately, because God has raised up leadership, they will have to make a judgment call as they stand in the presence of God and seek Him. And sometimes we may not agree with those decisions. Sometimes our opinions on it, we have a different angle or perspective on it, and we might necessarily say that was the best call. But this is what this text is teaching, the people of God. Everybody in here that is under leadership, number one, trust that as they minister before the Lord, they are also being led by the Lord. They are also being led by the Lord. And they are acting, as we heard in Malachi, under the fear of God to say, we have to do this and we trust that this is God's way of doing it. And that's not easy. That's not easy. But secondly, as we just read, not just that they are being led by the Lord, but whatever decision that they do end up making, they will be held accountable by the Lord. I say that to say pray for your leaders. Whether this is your local church or not, whatever church you represent, whatever church you are involved with, pray for your leaders. Realize that God has raised up leaders to make decisions for the direction of the church, for the health of the church. And third, trust. Trust. That whatever decisions they make, they are standing in the presence of God. That is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, wherever you're from, to make sure that you know that whoever you're sitting under is a man of God. That fears God. That doesn't see ministry as a job, but realizes that it's a calling. That has an eternal perspective. That trembles and fears. See, if he fears God the most, he will make the best decisions for his people. 
If he fears the people, he's going to make the worst decisions. And trust this too. However long you're a part of a ministry, you'll realize that sometimes there's going to be non-black and white issues in the church context. That the leadership, more than one person, will make the best judgment call as they stand in the presence of God and hear from him the best that they can. But here's a possibility. What if the leadership is corrupt? Or what if the leadership is not acting according? Is that possible? Is it possible for leadership not to be in line with God's word? Or is that impossible? It's possible. In fact, we go back to Malachi 2 that described wonderfully that covenant with Levi. Oh, he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. People came to him and they were turning from their iniquity. But look what it says in Malachi 2 verse 8. Right after God gave that description. Look what he says concerning the Levites, the state that they have found themselves in. But, that's a scary word sometimes. But you have turned aside from the way. He's not talking about the people. He's talking about the leadership. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9. And look what it says here. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Do you see it? Do you see the last part? This is the cause for their instruction of being twisted. This is the cause for the decisions in the leadership level of being perverse. What? Partiality. You know what another word for that is? Favoritism. 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 What were they doing? We're going to make this decision because we like this person or this group of persons more than this person. And what happened here is unfortunately what happens in many cases. The fear of God was lost. The fear of people was inherited. And they were operating under that spirit. And decisions began to collapse. And God condemned them for it. So it's possible. It's so possible. Not only is it possible in the Old Testament that Paul gave instructions. Guess who? to the church on what to do if there is corruption on a leadership level. 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. Look what happens here in this instruction for the church. It says here, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Hold on for a second. So it's possible for an elder to be in a position where they can be, unfortunately, under the influence of sin. But the process of highlighting that and disciplining that individual is not based on personal judgment. Notice here. Look how careful Paul is speaking in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, if there is an elder who is in sin, there has to be at least two or three witnesses. By the way, where did he get that idea from? Deuteronomy 17. That's in Deuteronomy 17. We're going to look at that later. It's in verse 6. Deuteronomy 17.6 says that nobody should be judged based on one witness, but on two or three witnesses at least. Why is that the case? Well, Paul applies this to leadership because it is also possible for personal animosity. It is possible for an individual to have envy, jealousy, false motives against a leader and to begin to come to a place, how unfortunate, 
to try to destroy that individual's reputation. And Paul knows this very well. And Satan knows this very well. Why? Because an elder's reputation is not limited to him. An elder's reputation influences the health of the church. An elder's reputation goes beyond the four walls of the church. An elder's reputation influences a watching, unbelieving world. And so Paul, in the wisdom of the Spirit, is operating with this balance. It's possible for an elder to be in sin. But it's also possible for somebody to be in sin and accuse this person of being sin when they're not really in sin. So how do we work this thing out? And the Spirit goes to Deuteronomy 17, says two or three witnesses. One person doesn't have just a hearsay evidence. Oh, I heard so-and-so did this. Did you see that? No, no, no. This person has evidence, number one. And that individual's evidence is not enough. You need two or three witnesses, not just to say, yeah, we believe what he's saying. No, they also witnessed it. And that collective evidence from these people make a case for a leader. You're saying, that's not fair. It is for the sake of the health of the church and for the sake of the testimony to an unbelieving, watching world. I'll add this layer too. We saw in Malachi that if the Levites were, and they were, in sin, who made them a base before all the people? Not Malachi. God. You want to add another level of the fear of God to this whole thing? The church, leaders in the church, do not answer to the other leaders. They don't answer to the congregation. They don't answer to a denomination. Leaders answer to God. See this whole thing right here? Guess who's the boss? Jesus Christ. Hear me very carefully. He hires and he fires. He hires and he fires. And it's scary when he does so. When a person, especially on the leadership level, does not choose to repent and humbly come under discipline. It's a terrifying thing. And so this whole thing about leadership and eldership on a congregational level, accusing, or not maybe accusing, of, of trying to indict someone has to be taken very, very seriously and carefully. In fact, when you go to Deuteronomy 17.6, he says not one witness. He says this. Listen to this. He says, now, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. We're talking about death penalty here, right? This is a serious thing. This is somebody's life. Do you know people can murder somebody's reputation? We're talking about real life here in Deuteronomy 17. 1 Timothy 5 is talking about murdering somebody's reputation. So when you go to Deuteronomy 17, look at the next verse, though. Look at, look at this instruction. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. So here's the instruction. You have a group of witnesses that say, this person, according to Deuteronomy 17, worshiping false gods. Here's our proof. Here's our evidence. We saw him bowing down to this idol in his living room when we walked by his neighborhood, whatever it was. They gather them, and this is God's wisdom. The ones who saw it, you've cast the first stones. You know what that would do to the people who are accusing? It would add so much responsibility. This person's life is literally in our hands right now. Did we really see him bowing down to that thing? Did we really see him worshiping false gods? The man's life was dependent upon these witnesses. And God was, in, in essence, trying to promote a sense of guilt if these people were false witnesses. They were the first ones that had to cast the first stones. Does that sound familiar? 
You know, there's a lot of verses taken out of context in the Bible, right? I mean, I have like a top five in my mind. Here's, here's one of the top five in my mind. He who is without sin, cast the first stone. Here's the interpretation in our day. Don't tell somebody they're a sinner. You're just as much as a sinner as they are. And people kind of interpret Jesus' defense of the adulterous woman to say, yeah, she committed adultery, but you guys, we're all sinners here. No, Jesus knew his Bible really well. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 3 of John chapter 8. This is going to put a little new light on this text, perhaps for some here. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher! Well, now he's teaching. They interrupted the whole teaching for this. Ready? Teacher! This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Look at these guys. Verse 5. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Don't they sound so righteous, defending the justice of God and the holiness of God and holiness in the camp? Look what John says here in verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. This charge was nothing against the woman. It was against Jesus. This whole thing was set up not to bring this woman into condemnation in a holy and just way. It was to find condemnation and judgment against the perfect one. It was a setup. So John highlights that to make sure nobody misinterprets to see how these men are trying to really follow the law. As they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, well, before that it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Out of, like, why? They're talking. Jesus hears them. And he bends down. And he begins to write in the ground. And, oh, theologians and commentaries and debates saying, what did Jesus write in the ground? Did he write the Ten Commandments? Did he write their sins? Now, at this point, I come here and I say, you can disagree with me on this point right here. We don't have to agree on this. One day I remember when I first got saved. This is not the main point either. This is just a thing to chew on. I remember when I first got saved. And I was reading through the Old Testament. And I came to the book of Jeremiah. And I was there sitting up on my bed reading Jeremiah 17 specifically. And this verse popped out to me. Jeremiah 17, 13. And we can put it up. Jeremiah 17, 13 popped out to me. And I thought to myself, maybe this is what Jesus was doing. In John chapter 8, and like I said, you can agree, you can disagree. Look what it says here. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Say, so what's happening there? To some degree, it can be applied to Jesus' act here. That these Pharisees, these false religious men that forsook the Lord, he in this act was literally writing something about their identity in the earth. Maybe their names even. And if these men knew their Bibles, they would have known that this is something related to that. You say, are you sure? 
the sequence even of this. Look at John chapter 7, verse 37. This is right before the woman being caught in adultery. Look what it says. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus just identified himself, something of being a fountain of living water, something of, of quenching your thirst, of satisfying, of the Holy Spirit indwelling you in the new covenant. And these Pharisees continually rejected him. And surely up to this point, they rejected him if they're coming up with a scheme like this. So it could be possible that Jesus is somewhat trying to highlight out of Jeremiah 17, 13, just after he says, I am the one who can provide living water, and then forsaking him, rejecting him, and making a prophetic statement in doing so. Could be. It's a possibility. It's not the main point. He's writing in the ground. And they see him writing on the ground. He's not saying anything. And guess what they're doing? They're pressing him on. Look at verse 7. And as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said, so they're asking him, say, Jesus, what are you going to do? What are you writing on the ground for? Maybe he's just starting something there. And they're going, what are you going to do about this woman? And the famous saying, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's Deuteronomy 17. That idea of being first to throw a stone. Whoever was to be the one that was going to throw the stone first had to be a witness. Not only was that person to call, called to be a witness, that witness had to be an individual who was separated from that sin. Had to be separated from that specific charge. Lest they also be stoned and condemned with it. Does that make sense? You cannot be a witness against a sin if you've committed the same sin. Or the very same sin, perhaps even with the individual. That doesn't make any sense. And so in light of that, he says, whoever is a true witness, who is disconnected from this type of sin, or from even being included in this very act of sin, maybe even with this person, cast the first stone. I'll let you do it. Nobody dared to cast a stone. What is Jesus doing here? He's pressing on their hypocrisy. He's pressing. Some would say, is he talking about all sin? Let him who has. Nobody has no sin. Nobody has no sin. But if he's specifying it to this specific sin that's being charged against, and he's calling and he's challenging to say, if you are disconnected from this sin that you're accusing this woman of, whether it's directly in this case or in general concerning this sin in which you would be deserved to receive the same penalty, cast the first stone. Nobody did it. The hypocrisy goes further than that. Anybody see a missing link in this whole thing? They brought the woman who was caught in adultery. Isn't there a missing person in this whole case? Who's that? And what does the Bible say in Deuteronomy? We'll see it right now in Deuteronomy 22, 22. Look at, look at the charge. They're quoting this very text to Jesus. They're saying such women should be stoned. And look what it says in Deuteronomy 20. If a man is, fine, is li found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. Here's my question. Where's the man? Both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. They just brought the woman. Where's the guy? So this whole thing is riddled with hypocrisy. And Jesus, listen, they're targeting this woman to be condemned. And Jesus is condemning those who are trying to condemn. He's calling out their hypocrisy. He's calling out their hypocrisy. He goes back and he starts writing in the earth again. 
Who knows what he's writing? Some would say Jeremiah 17, 13. Some say different things. And they were pricked and convicted. For those who use this verse to kind of ease their conviction in the lifestyle of sin and quoting this to people that might lovingly rebuke them in their sin, Jesus looks at this woman we know. He says in verse 11, she said, No one, Lord, when he says, Is there anybody here to condemn you? And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. He didn't stop there. Go and sin no more. It's amazing how we need to know the Old Testament to know the New Testament, isn't it? Now we come back to Deuteronomy 17. We talked about Levites and judges, and we're talking about our final leader here tonight. In Deuteronomy 17, look at verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and they then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Now, let's just stop here for a second. I want to ask this question tonight. And this is, this is where it gets exciting because we get to dialogue a little bit. Uh, you know how this always goes, right? There's always the people in the middle. Who here believes that it was God's idea to establish a king in Israel? Second question. Paul, you agree? Okay, saw you. Secondly, who believes that it wasn't God's initial idea, but it was man's idea and God allowed it? Man's idea and God allowed it? Who here believes that God wanted it initially? Everybody else? Let me ask the questions again. Number one, who believes that it was God's idea to say, there is going to be a day in which I will establish a king in Israel? Or who believes that the people really wanted it and God allowed it? Number one, who says number one? Number two? Oh, interesting. I won't give the answer right away. Let's consider the evidence, right? Now, when you read through the Bible, you come through Deuteronomy, then you come to a book called 1 Samuel. You realize something, right? In 1 Samuel 8, what happens? Samuel was who? What, what was his role? Judge, not just prophet. He was a judge. In fact, he was the last judge. He was the last judge in Israel. So Samuel was a judge. He unfortunately, because prophets make mistakes as well, he unfortunately makes a wrong judgment call and he, he raises up his sons in a leadership position when they were not in character for such a calling. He didn't seek God on it. So the people complain and they say, we want a king. We want a king like the nations that are around us. And, and I want you to see what God says in response to this in 1 Samuel 8, 7. You don't have to turn there. We're going to put it up on the screen. Look what happens here. And the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have, reject, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now hold on there. The evidence isn't finished yet. In this text, when you read 1 Samuel 8, you get the impression that the people wanted to be like the nations. And Samuel did not like this. I mean, up to this point, Israel was being ruled by judges. And now you have not only Samuel who's bothered, you have God himself who says, I was king over this nation. And they want to dethrone me and put up a human king? Let it be so. Now when you read that, you go, all right, it sounds like it was man's idea and God allowed it. But I want to challenge that 
Because when you go to Genesis, I'm going to read these to you. Listen to what, listen to what God says in Genesis. In Genesis 17:6. listen. Look what God says to Abraham and his wife. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Genesis 17, 6. Look what he says to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. So Genesis it's prophesied, and the people are even anticipating that there's going to be kings coming from our lineage. 1 Samuel 8, God doesn't seem too pleased with the proposal for kings to come out from among them. So let me ask the question again. Who here believes that it was God's original idea to raise up kings? Or who believes that it was man's idea and God permitted it? So if God is king, and then people like became kings, but then they made that king higher than God, but God wanted to be above everybody. So like, they're supposed to be kings, but not as high as a level as God was, and they made that person, like they worshiped that person. Sure. There's some, there's some validation there. Is it the timing? Is it the song was David? Who says it's the timing that's off? That's a really good conclusion. In fact, it's not just the timing, which is the right answer. It was the timing and the motive, which you're touching on. It was God's original idea to raise up a king eventually. But the people were operating under a false motive. What was their motive? We want to be like what? The nations. We want to be like the world. We want Israel to operate the same way the pagan nations operate. That was never God's intention for a king to be risen. And the timing. God was king over Israel at that time, and he was operating through judges. So the timing of dethroning him and trying to throne, uh, you know, put somebody else on the throne was, was off. And ultimately, God had in mind Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, of ruling and reigning. And so it was the motive and the timing. So when we come to Deuteronomy 17... He's predicting that they're going to be asking to be like the nations, and he's going to provide guidelines for this king, for this king figure. And it's very simple. Number one, God had to choose him. Number two, he couldn't be a foreigner. He had to be an Israelite. Then there's three specific things. We're talking about leadership, right? There are three specific guidelines that this king had to walk in, and we're familiar with this, right? Look at verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return to that way again. The first thing was, this king, he will never be dependent upon his own military strength. Never. Never. I'm the one who's going to fight your battles. And on top of that, don't you dare go back to Egypt. We know what that's a picture of. Don't get aid from the world. Don't lean upon the staff of Egypt. Don't try to recruit or be trained by their mentality I am the one who received glory in defending you. Power. Power. Number two. Verse, the second part of the verse, or 17 rather. You shall not acquire many wives. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Second thing, woman. We're talking about war power, now we're talking about woman. Now this was not just because of a lust to be satisfied. And by the way, people always question about the Old Testament's 
apparent approval of polygamy. I don't see approval of polygamy here. That was never God's intention for a man to have multiple wives. He gave instructions for the leaders who were to be a model and an influence in society not to operate that way. He's not supposed to have many wives. It was not just a lust thing. It was a political thing. The kings in that day would make marriage alliances so that they can be at peace with other nations. So sometimes that would be their mindset. And still, all the power of woman can steer your heart away from serving your God and serving their gods. Are Are we like characterizing somebody right now? Lastly, the second part of verse 17. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Wealth. War power, woman, wealth. Who broke all of these things? Solomon. Solomon literally went against every single one of these standards. It says that he made silver to be like dust in his day. He acquired thousands of horses and the turning point was his wives, 700, and he's like, it's not enough, I need 300 concubines. You know, I thought to myself, how did such a wise man fail to see the obvious warnings that God provided? Anybody have an idea? Pride? Lust? Following his heart. Is it possible for a wise man to make stupid decisions at times? Absolutely it is. In fact, I want to quote Hosea 4, verse 11. I'm going to go to verse 10, then verse 11. Listen to this carefully. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Whoredom swallowed up his ability to to walk in understanding. So lust is a big part of it. Which take away the understanding. When you begin to operate under your sensuality and your feelings of satisfying lust, what begins to mute in your heart and mind is the ability to make right judgments. That's why people who commit adultery often zone out in logical decisions and begin to make decisions that are reckless because they are allowing their lust to drive them. So when you come back to Deuteronomy 17, God knows that these will be temptations. Oh, and by the way, those three things are the three major pitfalls for all leaders of all types. Especially in the spiritual world. Power Woman, money. Power, woman, money have led many to crash headlong. So God says, how are we going to protect this king? And we're closing here in verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. So guess what this king is doing? This leader, he had to be a spiritual man. And he had to take a book of the copy. He wasn't quoting quoting Psalms and Ephesians. He had to take 
Deuteronomy specifically, but it's argued even the first five books of the Bible, he had to sit down and look at this, take a pen. He, did, he couldn't type it out. He couldn't Siri the voice into it and the text, so he couldn't do that. He had to take a pen. He had to take a parchment. And he literally had to write the law word for word from his own hand. I challenge anybody to do that over the summer. Write down Genesis to Deuteronomy. Never mind Genesis. Just write down Deuteronomy. See how much time it takes you. I wonder if anybody will take up that challenge. And he was to write it. He was to write it. He was to write it. Why? For the purpose of getting it in here. Not hire somebody to do it. And once he would do that, look at this. Verse 19. And it shall be with him. So it's always with him. He's carrying this thing around. It shall always be with him and he shall read it. He shall read it all the days of his life. Do you want a verse that, that promotes daily Bible reading? It's right there. Where does it say in the Bible to read your Bible every day? The king had to do it. All the days of his life. Now, in doing so, here's two results of that. Here are two results, not just for the king, but for anybody who knows this word and who stays close to this word. And I would argue the moment you drift away from this word, you drift away from these two realities. Ready? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God. Number one, when you stay close to this word, when you stay close to this word, it is with you and you read it all the days of your life, you better believe that it's going to do something concerning the fear of God. You're going to see something about God's character. You're going to see something in God's nature. And not just plain, God is holy, God is just. You're going to see how he deals with people throughout history. So people will go to a David-like figure and use it as an excuse. Well, David messed up, so I can mess up and God will forgive me. That's not why God put David in the Bible. So we read these things and we, it promotes the fear of God. It causes us to realize that if God acted in these ways, in the lives of real people that stepped on this earth, surely I'm not exempt from that. By keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, then here's the second conclusion. Here's the second consequence in verse 20. We see here that as you stay close to the word, his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. That he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Second thing, pride. When, you, when a leader gets up to that place of influence, number one danger is pride. And it's the mother of all sins. You get pride, anything is possible. Anything is possible. And so God in his wisdom says, a leader needs the fear of God. Isn't that what the Levites were operating under? Fear of God. They need the fear of God. And they need not to be elevated. Oh, I'm a king. Who are you? Who are you? Look who God, God called me. God didn't call you. Look at the platform that I stand on. What do you have? He goes, hmm. You know what's going to keep him humble? When he gets into the word. And he realizes not just the fear of God, he realizes the grace of God. He realizes that it is God who gives every good thing. It's not just God even calls you to the service. Listen to this. He gives you the strength for the service. He's the one who does it all. And the moment a person, it wasn't enough. Check this out. Look, how, look at how brains function. It wasn't even enough for him to just write it out and for say, okay, I wrote out the book of Deuteronomy. I'm good. You write it out and you nail it to your forehead. And that thing is ever before you. And as you stay close to this, 
you will stay closer to the fear of God and you will stay closer to humility. The moment you drift away from it is the moment it is the beginning, like Solomon's life, of a tragedy. I promise I'm closing here. You know what I love about this text in Deuteronomy concerning kings and how they should know the word of God? Remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew? Does anybody know which references he came up with every single time Satan brought a temptation? Every single one of his responses. Read Matthew 4 very carefully. Every single one of Jesus' responses were from the book of Deuteronomy. You think, why? I think it's to say something about him. That Jesus, by knowing the word of God, and it being so close to his heart, proved that when all other kings failed, he is the true king. And he is the king who is able to stand in the fear of God, to stand in humility. Because he, through Matthew chapter 4, says something about the power in Deuteronomy 17. That when you get the word in you, Jesus didn't have you version on his phone. He had it on his heart. So that even when Satan manifested in front of him, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Everything from Deuteronomy. Why? Is that by accident? No, it's to say, I'm the true king. And I'm the one who can walk in perfect obedience to the standards of God. And I am the one who can never fail. That's what he's saying there. And so I say this at the end. So much to say about leadership, but let's just cling on to this one truth. Let's stay close to this word. There is so much power in this word. So much power. That when you plant it in somebody else's heart, or when you plant it in your own heart, there is no knowing of the harvest that will come from it in due time. In due time. Let's pray and close together. Father, in this moment, in Jesus' name, we ask that what we've heard from this chapter in Deuteronomy would be held dear in our hearts. Lord, we pray for our leaders. God, we realize the reputation that they hold, the responsibility that they carry from all the churches that are represented here in this Friday night Bible study and do them with power. We pray for a supernatural hunger for the word of God. We pray that they would not be ones who would only teach from this word. They would be one who also eat from this word. They would realize that their soul is dependent upon it and the souls of others. Lord, in a day of great biblical illiteracy, raise up a standard. Raise up a people that will believe in the power of this word. It's greater power than a testimony, though testimonies are powerful. It has greater power than stories. It has greater power than charismatic delivery. In itself, it has so much force. And we pray that we would believe that as a people and especially our leaders, God. We pray for every local church to be operating in harmony, Lord, from leadership down, that there will be faithful leadership and faithful response to leadership, God. And may you reign and rule high, Lord, in every ministry represented here. We believe in you and we trust in you. And God, we see here a glimpse, we see here a glimpse preserving power that comes from the Word of God, the longevity that is accessible when we just really take your Word seriously. And we ask, God, that from the temptations for power and women and men and wealth, Lord, that all of that would be shielded by the greater promises that are found in your Word for our lives. Please, Lord, keep us close to this Word. Help us understand your wisdom for the king and not just the king, but for the average person in this day. Lord, we lean upon you tonight and we worship you for your wisdom from, from every book, every chapter you have something to say to us. And we worship you in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.